Blog Talk Radio. because today we have with us the amazing author of Primal Body, Primal Mind. She is a New York Times best-selling author, and she is also known as an expert in the paleo diet. Nora Gedgaudas is a widely recognized expert on what is popularly referred to as the paleo diet. She's the author of the international best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. She's also the author of the best-selling ebook Rethink Fatigue, What Your Adrenals Are Really Telling You and What You Can Do About It. Nora is an experienced nutritional consultant, speaker, educator, and is widely interviewed on national and international radio, radio, television, popular podcasts, online summits, television, and film. Her own popular podcasts are widely listened to on iTunes and are available for free download at her website. She maintains a private practice in Portland, Oregon, as both a board-certified nutritional consultant and as a board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist. Her latest book, Primal Fat Burner, was released in January 2017 by Simon & Schuster. So with us today, Nora Gedgaudas. Thank you for being on the Bottom Line Show Live. Yes, it's great to be here. Thank you. So let's dive in deep with regards to this fascinating topic. You have your most recent book, which you had against all odds and with all the natural um, impediments of inclement weather and rains and storms and people not being able to get in, you still had a spectacular uh, book launch in Oregon yeah. in January. So tell yeah, us that a was, bit it, about about that before we dive in deep. Right. So I had, you know, I had people say, "Well, you should have a book launch event, you know, for your new book." And I mm-hmm. thought, oh, you know, I, I, I didn't really want to, you know, be at the center of a lot of fuss, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought about it, and I thought, you know, actually, I could use this as an opportunity to bring attention to some charitable organizations that I, whose work I really, you know, want to see highlighted. And so I thought, you know, I'll make it a charitable event, and I'll really do it upright. And um, and so I used a, you know, wonderful event planner, and we created this absolutely magical venue, um, mm-hmm. and we raised money for. Uh, both the Savory Institute, you know, Alan uh, Savory uh, himself actually attended the event uh, uh, via live link. And, um, and and actually he was completely brilliant there. It was just a, an absolutely wonderful, wonderful evening. And also raised money for an organization, a, a fledgling organization called the Hunt Gather Grow Foundation, which is 
basically an organization really looking to consolidate the interests of the real food movement and not play favorites with one type of uh, you know, real food approach over another and, and just kind of take on the stuff that affects us all. And uh, I'm on the board of that particular organization. Um, I'm not paid for that position in any way, shape, or form, but I believe in what they're trying to do. And so the, the idea was to raise some money for them and for the Savory Institute, but particularly to you know, bring attention to them. And in any case, um, you know, there was amazing you know, multi-course meals served at the event. There um, was amazing music, amazing ambiance. And there was literally not one single complaint about the evening, in spite of the fact that, you know, we basically were in the middle of snowpocalypse here. Um, we'd had, you know, quite a stretch of freezing weather, and we'd had a foot of snow just uh, three or four days before, about three days before the event. Uh, we had freezing temperatures. The city was mostly paralyzed. But uh, we still had, uh, you know, a huge room full of people and many of whom actually flew in from out of state uh, for the event. I was actually shocked at how many people flew in for the event. So and hugely managed successful. managed to make it in. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and right. managed to get in because I know a lot of people that week were um, both here in L.A., Chicago, New York, uh, San Francisco, were stormed in either through snow, sleet. Yes, or rain, and because it wasn't just little rain, it was like flooding rain. So um, that's impressive right. that you were still managed to have people succeed. Well, and there were people in. actually, yeah, who were supposed to come, who uh, were actually, it wasn't our weather that, that kept them from coming, it was their weather that kept them their from weather. coming. Yeah. That's you know, ice saying. storms and all kinds of them. other things that got mm-hmm. in the way. Yeah. So it's <laughs> you know, I, I was amazed it went as well as, as it did, really. Um, yeah, it was, it was special. It was really a magical, magical evening. So, so you mentioned a buzzword for me because uh, as you're talking about, you know, pairing up with the Savory Institute to help the real food movement and um, give, you know, this is tied with, you know, what you do that has to do with health and nutrition. Um, would you, for for the benefit of our listeners, would you please define real food? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. like defining anything. Sometimes there are as many definitions mm-hmm. as there are people claiming to take, be taking part in these things. Um, mm-hmm. But the real food movement basically incorporates elements of things like the Weston A. Price Foundation stuff and the paleo diet and paleo movement stuff and the, even the vegetarian vegan stuff where people mm-hmm. are coming together who recognize that we have an extremely compromised environment. We have an extremely compromised food supply that's been co-opted by multinational corporate interests, um, basically you know, bent on controlling it at mostly our expense and the expense of our environment. Most of us you know, that passionate about our health and passionate about the environment, um, you know, we're all up against the same basic problems. And the idea is... You know, when we say real food, we're talking about food that is produced in a manner that is as close to, uh, you know, nature as possible, right? So animals being Mm -hmm. fed exclusively on pasture as opposed to being shoved into feedlots and shot full of hormones and antibiotics and being fed gum wrappers and cement dust and whatever else they're fed, Um, (laughs) GMO foods and things like that. And Mm -hmm. yet things that have not been 
you know, we're talking about food that has not been genetically modified. We're talking about food that's been grown without pesticides and herbicides and, you know, mm. basically bioengineering. Um, we're talking about, you know, people that recognize that, that healthy whole food is foundational to our health, uh, you know, and, and that our health is foundational to pretty much everything else that matters to us. So, um, so it tends to be a passionate group of people, but as with many things, sometimes, you know, trying to bring everybody together toward a common cause is a little bit like herding cats. You know, we have lots and lots of different points of views, viewpoints, ideologies as to how all this should work. And the idea behind the Hunt, Gather, Grow Foundation is to, just to basically to bring together uh, people that, that care about these core concepts who are willing to work together to address them and, mm-hmm. um, you know, not necessarily people that are, um, you know, that are trying to advance one ideology or another. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's a big call for this out there because many of these groups within the real foods movement have a tendency to kind of compartmentalize. And uh, some of them uh, seem to have, um, uh, let's just say less than cozy relationships with with the with other you know groups, and and end up they end up kind of bickering back and forth instead of really just sort of getting things done. And so there was there seemed to be a need. You know, some of these groups seem to have you know more cult followings than, and uh, you know, there's there's just a lot of stuff going on that. Uh, it, it seems that there needed to be a lot of petty politics cut through and, and create an organization that's genuinely interested in being democratically run um, and and to serve the needs and the interests of the actual members as opposed to the needs and interests of whoever might be running things. And and so I think it's a great concept. And uh, right now we're I know Hunt Gather Grow. Foundation is is working on a membership drive. We we've already had one conference, um, but we're looking to have another conference, hopefully a bigger and better conference. And uh, so we're hoping to really get a membership drive going. We want local chapter leaders and uh, looking to try to get, uh, you know, I think this this whole important thing off the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's all about. So let's go back and do a little, you know, if we were to look at your life as a, as a motion picture. Now, let's rewind back to your childhood because you happen to have oh boy. The, the, good, the good fortune that you were brought up in a medical family with uh, your folks being in that industry. So kind of fill in our listeners with a little bit about that background and how, you, how it shaped you. Um, you know, I, I believe that nothing is on accident. Everything is on purpose at the right time with the yeah, right Yeah, I agree people. with you. And no experience is wasted, good or bad, because we obviously right. oftentimes I, I like totally to agree with put you. aside. Yeah. And you've ha- heaven knows that you've had your share of uh, adversities and challenges that I wouldn't want to wish on anyone. So take us back to a little bit and fill, it, fill in what that section of your the motion picture of your life was like as a child and how right. it unfolded to bring you onto this path. 
Right. Yeah, it's a convoluted path for sure. So <laughs> I, I was raised, <laughs> no lie, uh, I was raised in, yeah, the medical family. I guess my father was um, was head of the radiology department at University of Minnesota Medical Schools. He was professor, professor emeritus for the, uh, for the medical school there. Um, and he also was the first, uh, his department was the first in the world to bring full-bodied CAT scan and MRI to this country. So he was highly visible within the medical world. He, you know, he believed that those technologies were the future of medicine and, you know, wouldn't you know he was right. Um, and so he caught a lot of uh, media attention at the time. I mean, this was way back when. Now, I don't know, 70s, 80s, I don't even remember what year all of that happened. Um, and I have an older sister who's also a radiologist, um, who's married to a radiologist. My younger sister is married to a radiologist. So there's a lot of that kind of um, kind of mainstream medical mentality in my family, which was a which was a mixed blessing for me. I, I was uh, always very science oriented. It was sort of expected that I would follow in my father's footsteps early on. Um, and, you know, for a while it looked like it might actually go that way, but, but I found that myself less than inspired by, by mainstream conventional, uh, well, mainstream conventional thinking in a lot of respects, but mainstream conventional thinking within medicine and somewhere in the late seventies, I really stumbled across the subject of, of nutrition and particularly taken by the concept of supplements and things like that. And, um, and it became, uh, a virtual obsession for me. It's sort of what I spent all my time doing when nobody else was looking. And it never occurred to me in a million years that a person could actually make a living with an interest in all of that. I mean, I wasn't interested. I knew I wasn't interested in becoming a dietitian, you know, or anything like that. So, I really wasn't sure where it could go, but um, but I found I had suffered basically my whole life from what had been pretty intractable uh, and and at times quite severe depression, and also mm. with time uh, that ended up mushrooming into anxiety and panic attacks, and it, it, it none of it seemed to really respond to much of anything, and I had tried a whole lot I, somehow in my own inherent makeup there is a core sense of determination that I have where I'm, I knew it didn't have to be that way. I knew that that wasn't normal. I knew that there just had to be an answer. And so I looked everywhere and I, you know, did all kinds of self-help stuff and, you know, spent a week working with Tony Robbins and I you know, went and then I sat at mountaintops and I did vision quests and I, you know, did all kinds of very high quality, actually, you know, many years of high quality uh, psychotherapy. And uh, I tried acupuncture and I tried, uh, you know, listening to all kinds of tapes and, um, you know, just an enormous, enormous range of things that I tried. And, and I think I got something of value from virtually everything. Um, wow. And I even at one point went the medication route, and I think the only value I really got from that was was that it, it helped me understand what it felt like, at least for me, to be on uh, some of these, you know, SSRI medications and things. And it wasn't that it m- made the depression better so much as it um, it helped me care about the depression less in some ways. But things were very flat. 
And I realized that whatever it was those medications had done with me, it wasn't normalizing anything. And that was troubling to me. And so I, I put those behind me. I ended up stumbling across, well, there were two things I stumbled across. Um, one was the field of neurotechnology and that I developed an avid interest in because it made tremendous sense to look at the brain not just simply as biochemical but also bioelectric. And that ultimately led me down another convoluted path, much longer story, I'll spare you right now, but into the field of neurofeedback. And around the time I began doing neurofeedback, I, was also, I had also stumbled across the notion of, of diet and health from a more ancestral perspective and was making big changes in my diet, which I started to look at as being more of the foundational approach I needed to take as opposed to just simply reaching for what supplement did what. And, and I think that the combination together, I think neurofeedback flipped the switch that liberated me from what had been a lifetime of intractable depression, as well as anxiety and panic attacks that weren't responding to anything else. But it was the nutritional part of things that actually consolidated all that and, and made it a permanent part, I think, of my brain and nervous system. Um, that and, you know, sufficiently repeated brain training sessions. Uh, and now it's been more than 20 years since any of that has been an issue for me at all. But, um, you know, my thinking along the lines of nutritional science uh, also underwent a rather radical transformation in about the year 1991. Again, like I say, convoluted path, right? So just sort of mm-hmm. uh, keep that in mind. Um, I actually had uh, was invited to assist in doing some behavioral research uh, less than 500 miles from the North Pole in the company of a world-famous wolf biologist. And this was an area, another area of expertise and interest for me, of, of intense, in, intense interest. And uh, I was basically invited to spend an entire summer in the company of this wolf biologist who was a dear friend um, living with a family of wild wolves. And um, he'd been uh, basically going up every single summer since 1986 and living with the same basic family, uh, core family uh, structure, whatever, of these, uh, of these particular wolves. I mean, the family changed uh, Every you know year, the composition of the pack changed, and uh, you know sometimes it was the same alpha pair, sometimes it was a different one that had you know that had sort of taken over. But uh, and and Dave, as far as I know, continues to go up. I, I don't think that I, I think he plans to you know keep going up there and, and until the day he dies, um, and uh, spends every summer basically following the same family of wolves. And, and in 1991, uh, I was his sole companion. And what was so interesting to me when I went up there was that I had, um, you know, I had been basically had bought into the mainstream idea of what a healthy diet is. In other words, if you're going to eat meat, it better be really lean um, and you better be eating mostly fruits and vegetables. And, um, you know, I was doing a lot of juicing back then and all that kind of stuff. And and I was sure that, that, you know, vegetables were the like cornerstone of everything. And I was still eating things like grains and legumes and potatoes and, and stuff back in those mm-hmm. days, which I don't, I don't eat any of that anymore. Um, I do eat vegetables and, and, and greens and things like that, but I, I, I'm not eating 
I don't eat starch-based foods at all anymore. Uh, and we can talk about why later, but at any rate. But I went up there awfully concerned about the fact that there wasn't that there weren't going to be any farmers markets. You know, there were no produce stands, and in fact, nothing really grew even that was edible out of the ground, uh, other than tiny plants that could feed, you know, ruminants and other herbivores. But um, there were no edible plants, you know, for, in, in so far as for, for humans, uh, where mm-hmm. where I was, and I was there for an entire summer, so. Um, I was quite concerned about how this was going to affect my health uh, if I couldn't, you know, eat the kinds of foods I thought I should be eating. And then when I got off the plane and I, you know, found myself out on the tundra, the strangest thing happened. I found myself craving fat. And I'm craving this thing that should be like the worst thing in the world for me, uh, at least insofar as what conventional nutrition, you know, conventional so-called wisdom in, in nutritional education just sort of said, yeah, you don't want to do fat. And if you're going to do fat, it should be vegetable oils only and all that kind of stuff. And I found myself sitting on my backside on the tundra and wanting to just eat salami and cheese. I mean, I'm not saying I was eating the best sources of fat um, and nut butters and nuts and whatever. And then once a week we would make a pilgrimage to a military weather outpost and they, we would go in the middle of the night when everything was quiet and everyone else was asleep. And the officer in charge had told us we could go in and take showers, maybe make one 15-minute phone call. And then, uh, and then if there was anything laying out in the mess hall that we were interested in munching on, we were welcome to do that. So after taking you know, my shower and whatever else, my first shower there or whatever, I wandered into the mess hall. And there with the light of heaven shining upon it at the far end of the mess hall was this enormous bowl of butter. And I made just a straight, a beeline straight wow. for that bowl. And there was a loaf of bread next to it. And I would put slice after slice. Uh, you know, back then it was like a vehicle for the butter, right? I was still eating bread and crap <laughs> like that back then. I don't eat that anymore. And I would just eat slice after slice of, you know, this bread with just like an, as much butter as I could, you know, could slather on there until I was just too embarrassed to continue. And I wasn't really getting much exercise up there. I was very well bundled against the cold, very comfortable. Um, Mostly we spent time sitting on the tundra or sitting on four-wheelers when it came to following the wolves on their hunts. So there wasn't a lot of physical activity to be had. I occasionally took a stroll along the, the shoreline of the fjord or walked across some of the hummocky tundra, but Mostly I didn't move very much. So you'd have thought that somebody sitting around on their backside eating, you know, a lot of fatty food all day long would have just ballooned. And in fact, I lost close to 25 pounds. And so... So counterintuitive. I knew, yeah, very counterintuitive. And, and it was something that left me kind of thinking WTF, right? <laughs> Hashtag WTF. Yeah. You know, what is going on with this? And, and that doesn't that didn't fit what I had been told. The other thing that was happening simultaneously at up there as I spent long, long, long hours looking over this, this extremely ancient landscape that wasn't even glaciated during the last ice age, realizing that it look, probably looked a lot like um, ice age, you know, Northern Europe. I mean, there was permafrost and it was, you know, just long rolling kind of pristine kind of tundra like landscape. And, and there wouldn't have been, I mean, I realized that for more than 10,000 years, there had been people groups living there. 
And during the last ice age, humans had live in, lived in conditions that were not unlike this. And, um, you know, and, and I thought, you know, there weren't vegetables for them either. And how could that be? And how could these people, you know, have lived for as long as they did and had, had done as well as they did without the foods we're told should be the foundational basis of our diet? And so when I got back finally to the States with a lot kind of niggling at the back of my mind, I happened to stumble across the work of Weston A. Price. Now, I'm guessing probably most of your listeners are savvy enough to know who that is, right? Or do they, do you think? Um, probably, I would say maybe half of them or maybe a little more. But so it's still in the blank. Weston Price, right, in the 1920s or so, he was the – um, president of what used to be the National Dental Association, but he was also, um, you know, a bit of an anthropologist, and he had a real interest in primitive cultures and things like that. And one of the things he was noticing in his dental practice that the children of of many of his old clients were showing up with with what looked like skeletal abnormalities and malocclusions of their teeth and and more dental problems than their parents had had. And he was asking himself whether the changes he was seeing in his patient population and in society at large might have something to do with changes in diet that were occurring at the time. It was an increasingly industrialized food supply. And he'd heard all these stories. He'd long heard stories about the superb health and dentition of of people in primitive societies, etc. And so he set about uh, to do a uh, scientific investigation of his own. And he spent 10 years traveling over 100,000 miles around the planet. Um, and it was such an interesting time period. We just developed air travel. And yet there were still many of these primitive and traditional cultures that were thriving throughout the world. Um, hmm. And so he went to to take a look at what was going on with, say, the Aboriginal people in Australia at the time. Many of them were still living, um, you know, lives uh, in their traditional in their traditional manner. In fact, they were doing that until 1985, some of them. Um, and he went to look at the many Native tribes in South America. He went to uh, – Native American tribes in Canada and in um, Alaska, and um, he looked, you know, spent time among the Inuit, and he went to Africa, and he went to some remote uh, outposts in the Swiss Alps, for instance, where, you know, we're talking about post-agricultural societies, but they, they'd been living in relative isolation for close to a couple thousand years, and was able to kind of check them out, and and people in the, uh, on some remote Celtic Isles uh, and, and whatever have you. And anyway, and what he found consistently is where people were really sticking to their primitive or traditional diets, they had superb health, superb you know dentition, superb skeletal structure. Uh, ter- they seemed tremendously happy. They seemed tremendously well-adjusted. Uh, and... And where he found members of these different cultures that were attempting to enculturate in modern Western society, he saw a very rapid deterioration of health in those people. And where he really saw problems was wow. in subsequent generations. 
um, you know, where there was there were increasing problems and birth defects and and proneness to uh, illness and disease and and you know mental health problems and things like that. And uh, anyway, he ended up consolidating all this research, putting it together, and publishing a book called Degeneration. Not what you call a light read. It was actually a textbook. And it was actually required reading in Harvard anthropology classes for quite a long time. Uh, mm. And all anybody really has to do, frankly, if you're not into reading all of this intense detail, which was exhaustive, um, he was really quite a consummate scientist in the way he went about things. You just look at the pictures that he took of the faces of these people in the primitive cultures and the, the quality, you can just see the quality of their health and their dentition and their skeletal structure. And then he took pictures of people that he found enculturating into modern westernized, industrialized society and took pictures of them and their teeth and you know their apparent you know, deteriorated physical health. And it, it tells an amazing tale. And, and it really lit me up with an awareness of, wow, there's really something here. Except it also made me want to dig back further. Because I realized that for a good part of our evolutionary history, the world had really been a very different place than it's been in the last 10,000 years or so. And so I was compelled to go back to some of our earlier evolutionary beginnings and really look because it seemed rational to me to think that the kinds of foods that would have been most available to us throughout the course of our long evolutionary history would have also served to establish a lot of our inherent nutritional requirements. Um, and they, you know, these selective pressures would have also helped shape our basic physiological makeup in the first place. And I realized that this had to be an essential starting place in evaluating any dietary approach that professed to be optimal. That had to be a starting place. And then beyond that then, you know, figuring out, you know, so the other question I had to ask myself was, well, just because our ancestors ate something, does that necessarily mean that's an optimal thing for us today or that it was optimal for them? I mean, how would we know? Um, and how would we know how to apply these these so-called Paleolithic principles in a way that uh, that we know would be beneficial to our health. And so where I went with that was human longevity research, to take a look at where these things basically, uh, where these things came together. And what there were two basic things that I discovered. Number one is that anything you can do to minimize the production of insulin, you know, your requirement for in insulin, in other words, um, throughout the course of your life, the longer you will live and the healthier you will be by far. And since dietary carbohydrates, uh, such as sugar and starch, are the primary macronutrient that has the strongest impact on, on eliciting insulin, um, it's a no-brainer, you know, those are the things you need to minimize. Also, the fact that of the three major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there is no established, uh, scientifically established human dietary requirement in any medical textbook or textbook of physiology is car carbohydrates. So because of that, and for other reasons, it's like, okay, minimize that as much as possible. Now, our ancestors did consume quite a lot of animal protein, but it turns out that although we need to meet 
some basic complete protein needs. And, and these proteins are best gotten from animal source foods for a variety of reasons we can go into. It's, it is still important that we not exceed those requirements, that we consume as much protein as we need, but not exceed that. So what I advocate for actually is only a moderate protein intake, maybe two, three ounces in a meal, um, you know, six, seven ounces in a day um, is all that's needed for pretty much anybody with maybe, a, you know, a, a few exceptions we can also talk about. But, uh, and then um, fibrous vegetables and greens, I think, one of the other things I wanted to take into account was that was the kind of world we live in today, the toxic world we live in today. And, um, and it seems that fibrous vegetables and greens probably have a more important role to play now than they ever used to uh, in terms of the, some of the antioxidants they provide, the phytonutrients that they can provide us with that have, you know, clear, clearly well-researched benefits to us. And also the, the basically detoxifying, effects of many of these kinds of foods and also the way in which they're able to feed our microbiome, right? Our, our gut bacteria. So, okay, great. Um, so we can have as much of that as we want. Fibrous vegetables and greens tend to be very low in utilizable sugar and starch. And then, um, and then using fat as the thing to actually fill in the caloric intake. Fat from a wide variety of um, of sources, but these sources have to be um, the highest quality sources we can find. And, and they, of necessity, have to include high quality animal source foods. And by high quality, I mean from animals that have been exclusively fed, fed on nothing but pasture. And in those fats, there are essential fatty acids that form the basis of human cognition um, these 20 and 22 carbon fats like arachidonic acid, nicosexanoic acid, which are the two um, fatty acids most responsible for our unique human cognition. But also these fats that are also a rich source of critical and unique fat-soluble nutrients that really can't be gotten, many of which cannot be gotten from plant-based foods. And, um, and vitamin A would be one, and no vitamin A is not beta-carotene at all. Um, it takes 6 to 20 units of beta-carotene to form a single unit of vitamin A under optimal circumstances, and many people can't do it at all. There's no way you can meet your retinol requirements by eating carrots. Um, and vitamin D3, which in northern climates, there's no way people were getting their vitamin D3 from sunshine. Vitamin D3 in our diets is exclusively found in the fat tissue of animals. And animal source foods that have been, you know, animals that have been allowed to live in fresh air and sunshine and eat what's natural for them to eat have very high levels of D3 in their body fat. And that's, you know, where dietarily we're designed to get that. Vitamin K2. We, people are familiar with K1 that are in green leafy vegetables. K1 is mostly involved in blood clotting. Vitamin K2 does so much more in the human body and has so many more roles to play in, in helping our body make the healthiest use of minerals and also helping our immune fu system function normally. And uh, vitamin K2, again, found exclusively in the fat of animal source foods, at least the MK4 form of vitamin K2. I realize I'm getting technical. There's another form of vitamin K2 that can be gotten from fermented foods, 
um, that are synthesized by bacteria. But again, um, there, our ancestors got most of it through the eating the fat of the animals that we once hunted. Well, and and so I want to ask you because I know that sixty percent of the of the brain is actually made of fats of lipids, right? And seventy five percent of it is water. And obviously, we as human beings, our cellular makeup is far more similar to that of other mammals than it is to that of a plant. And right. yes, our body is designed to eat both animals as well as plants. So how, you know, given that you have this background in, you know, um, neurotechnology and nutrition and so forth and biofeedback of the brain and how the brain works and so forth, I'm, I'm curious to hear um, what your experience has been, you know, because there has been this, this uh, this movement of making people more conscientious about, you know, health and nutrition and the quality of the food that they eat. And there's, you know, it's no secret. We've got everything from Juice Plus to Juice It Up to Jamba Juice to the Jack-O-Lane <laughs> Juicers, the Nutribullet. I mean, I could keep on going on and on. You know what I mean? Right, right. People are, yeah. you know, and we're people very, like you know, I'm a juicer. Well, yeah. you know, we like our sugars, but we like to get a certain amount of nutrients in our body first thing not just, you know, all day long, but first thing in the morning and so forth. Um, but we, we cannot deny the fact, and I don't think most people realize that our brains are made up of, you know, we all have heard that the body is made up over 80%, you know, water. But I think few people realize that 75% of our brain is water and over 60% of our brain are fat lipids. And if you're not taking Right, and fat, it's you know, close to 80% by dry weight, right? I mean, your brain is, yeah, so, you know, we're, we're, we're fatheads first and foremost. Well, the thing to keep in yeah. mind, too, is that the second most abundant nutrient in the human body next to water is fat. And yet people don't really question the idea that getting water intake every day is incredibly important. But, but, but there's a taboo on supplying the body um, with fat on, on a day-to-day basis, in particular the kinds of fats that we most readily evolved consuming. The thing I'll, I'll point out about plant foods, and I do think that they're more important. I, you know, I don't have an, a, uh, an objection to juicing per se. I do have a little bit of a problem with how much sweetness that people, you know, I mean, if it's, if it's unsweetened green drinks, fabulous. Cause I think that there's a lot of value. I do. I don't necessarily put fruits in the same category as vegetables, particularly modern day okay. fruits that have been largely, um, you know, cultivated for their size and sweetness and not their nutritional content. And we know that mm-hmm. fructose is easily the most damaging sugar of all, which is the, you know, the chief sugar found in fruits. And it's 20 to 30 times more glycating than glucose. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there, there really is. I mean, I, I don't have a, too much of a problem with somebody eating a handful of berries here and there, but... Uh, but if, if people are going to be juicing, then then using, um, you know, primarily fibrous vegetables and greens in that process, I think is, is going to probably, you know, serve the best, uh, serve the best uh, purposes. But the that thing to nice. keep in mind, yes, although we're omnivores and we're able to eat plant foods, we're not actually designed in a way that is able to make optimal use of plant foods. Uh, we're not designed to be able to eat them to the exclusion of other things and be able to achieve all of our nutritional requirements. The thing to point out, when it comes to the animals that are actually designed 
to eat a plant-based diet all day long. Um, for instance, ruminants and other herbivores. Number one, what do you see them doing? Well, their faces are in the grass, they're in the bushes, they're whatever, all day long, um, trying to take in the amount of nutrition and, and whatever else that can actually uh, sustain them. But the other thing to keep in mind is that, and this is an interesting fact a lot of people don't realize, that even large ruminants are designed to get 70% of their caloric intake from uh, basically from saturated fat. Um, And where they're getting it is from the bacterial fermentation of all that fiber that they consume all day long. Bacteria synthesize butyric acid, which is a short-chain saturated fatty acid that forms the basis for uh, ruminant caloric intake. This is also the basis of the caloric, primary caloric intake of even our, uh, um, our primate uh, cousins, who, by the way, have much more fermentative digestive systems than we do. A human colon maybe makes, it has a much smaller digestive tract than, than say, a chimpanzee or a gorilla. Um, the colon in the human body takes up maybe 20% of that digestive tract, whereas in a chimp, it's about 50, at least 52% of that digestive tract. And so we don't have a fermentative-based digestive system that is designed to be able to extract all of the nutrition from fibrous plant foods. A lot of it is indigestible to us. Um, We can make use of some of it, but we cannot make primary use of plants as a sole source of nourishment for ourselves. And so um, we are actually designed, we have a much greater uh, much short, uh, much greater, uh, longer, small intestine, a much shorter, large intestine than our basically primate cousins. And we're much better designed to get our nutrition, and, and ours is basically a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system um, that is designed to extract primary nutrition from concentrated sources of protein from animal source foods and by far, we are the, designed to be getting the most fat of of any primate, by far. And, good uh, fats, not fats from well, good fats basically, and, and French fries. <laughs> well, exactly. So you know, the bad fats are basically the ones that come out of test tubes, right? Or the ones that are huh. overly processed, or the ones that might be rancid. Mm-hmm. Good mm-hmm. fats are which ones a lot of people that, are eating rancid fats, and they're not they're not even aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of a lot of fats are, and and unfortunately, you know, most restaurants use. I mean, the number one source of fat calories in the American diet is actually partially hydrogenated, genetically modified soybean oil. So, is there it's any scary. wonder why you know people are in trouble, right? Um, yeah. And uh, and most delis are using also genetically modified, partially hydrogenated canola oil. Um, which, is the worst. which nobody should be consuming under any circumstances. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it is worse actually in in some respects. Yeah. Um, canola is unique in that, you know, for for whatever reason, the seed of that plant is unusually low naturally in vitamin E. Most seeds contain an appreciable amount of vitamin E, which are designed, which is designed to basically stabilize and protect the delicate fats that exist within the seed. And for whatever reason, the canola seed is just abnormally low in vitamin E. So 
even if you're consuming organic expeller pressed canola oil, it is going to increase your own dietary requirement for vitamin E and can even help give you a deficiency of vitamin E in the process of consuming it. One other thing that's interesting is that the, uh, the predecessor to canola, which was known as is rapeseed, um, and um, was, was thought to be toxic to humans because and cause lesions in uh, heart lesions in, in, uh, in experimental animals, for instance. Uh, be, and, and it was because they thought anyway of a particular fatty acid within the, the canola seed or that particular rapeseed known as erucic acid. And so they just sort of figured it had to be the erucic acid. And so they bred the erucic acid out of that seed, called it canola, and called it good. But it turns out in subsequent experiments that the same heart lesions continue to appear in experimental animals fed canola seeds because um, basically it, it, it probably wasn't the erucic acid, right? It had to do, it probably has to do with the abnormally low levels of vitamin E and um, the depleting effect of vitamin E, which is very important for cardiovascular health. So anyway, nobody should be consuming canola oil. Nobody mm-hmm. should be consuming. As a matter of fact, you know, I don't know if you know this, and I have an article on my blog right now about this very subject, mm-hmm. actually, that both uh, commercial soybean and canola oil are also used as pesticides. Well, they actually yeah. are effective <laughs> pesticides. Well, they, and, 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 and it's sold as sort of like a green product, you know, like, oh, look, natural canola oil. You can spray this on your plants and it'll kill insects and their eggs and their larvae. And by the way, don't, you know, don't, don't consume this yourself and don't come into contact with it. And if you do call poison control, (laughs) it's, it's very, very interesting. Well, and, and most people, I think that canola is a natural product, but people don't realize that I think in the sixties or seventies in Canada, canola oil was actually invented and engineered in Canada uh, and it's been used widely for lipsticks and lubricants and biofuels and, like you're saying, insecticides. And think about it: if it's if they're using it as an insecticide to kill to kill living, you know, organisms, what do you think it's doing to the inside of your body? It's got to be yeah, killing. Yeah, it's it's, you know, it's not doing good things. Structure. No, right, of course, right. Um, but it's of also course, one of the most genetically was, modified, uh, you know, seeds that that there is. That and soy and corn are terribly, terribly genetically modified. So, yeah, which yeah, is uh, it's terribly problematic. Because the way, yeah, the way it's been marketed to us to make it seem that it's a plant-based, you know, oil and that it's good for us, and it really, there's really nothing good for us, you know, from canola oil. Right. There's quite literally no good to be gotten at all. I, I can think of literally no good reason to consume it. Um, it's one of the reasons that it, it became popularized other than that it became the darling of, you know, big agribusiness because it's cheap, very cheap to produce. Um, mm-hmm. it, and it was profitable for them because they killer you know, a form of life. So yeah. lots of money to be made there. But, but, you know, the thing is, is that, um, you know, everybody started hearing about how great olive oil was because of all of the oleic acid, the omega-9s that were in olive oil. Well, you know, the thing about omega-9s and the thing about olive oil, it's not how bad, not how great for you it is, it's how bad for you it's not. Um, 
but, you know, mm. all part healthy olive oil. Well, so there is some significant oleic acid in canola. And because there was such a demand on, on olive oil, on the olive oil industry, and they didn't think they could meet all the consumer demand for olive oil, they decided to present canola as an alternative heart-healthy source of omega-9s. But what they don't tell you is that, you know, and, and some, they might even lie and tell you that there are omega-3s in canola. All of the omega-3s in commercial canola oil have been hydrogenated out of it. Um, as part of its deodorization process. That's not listed on the label, but they basically take and they hydrogenate the omega-3s out of it because it makes the oil go rancid so quickly that nobody would be able to tolerate the smell of it. Um, you know, once it's been removed from the seed and whatever else, it goes rancid very, very quickly. Canola also has very high levels of omega-6 in it, which are not inherently bad, but the problem is is that they're overrepresented in our food supply. And um, they're overrepresented. They're very high in grains, um, higher in legumes. They're higher in seed oils, which are, you know, the primary sources of fat that are basically being used in, in, our, in, uh, in the food industry and in restaurants and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and omega-6s tend to push the body more in an inflammatory direction. Omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. Kinds of omega-3s we evolved consuming, which were the elongated forms found in exclusively, by the way, in animal source foods um, within our food supply, EPA and DHA, um, you know, those are increasingly disappearing because when we consume the meat of animals that have been raised in feedlots, they're basically eating all the same crap that we're being told we should be eating. You know, um, you know they feed grains to cattle to fatten them up. So take a hint, right? Um, yeah. And grains are really, really yeah. have. Yeah, grains don't have omega three content. They have a lot of omega six content. And so when you feed cattle, um, basically the, the, these uh, grains and legumes and things like that, you're you're filling them with the same kind of inflammatory omega sixes that are in these seed oils and things. And so when we eat the fat of an animal like that, we're more likely to get uh, inflammatory, uh, you know, inflammatory issues as a result of eating that. Look, the health of the meat or fat you eat depends more than anything on the health of the meat and fat or the health of the animal rather that that meat and fat came from. And so if that animal was allowed to live in fresh air and sunshine and eat what was natural for it to eat, you have a nutritionally superior product. You also have something that is vastly superior in terms of its sustainability, in terms of its impact on the planet, not just its impact on your health. Well, and so this, yeah. these, these raise much, much bigger issues that I think are every bit as important. Well, well and, and I think... You've hit the nail on the head on so many different points. Um, I, wa I want to bring up the issue because I think you're you're acutely aware of this particular aspect that is oftentimes not talked about when we talk about nutrition and health and well-being, and how it affects the chemistry, you know, of our bodies. But you right. know, are you know when you ingest, and I'm going to keep to, you know, um, organically uh, fed animals that aren't fed fake food, but that are fed, you know, legitimate. Um, the real food that they're supposed to be, you know, like grass-fed beef uh, right, right. and 
chickens that are, you know, uh, in a good, healthy environment where they're not standing in their own feces t- type of situation, but they're, they're, you know, what nature intended for them to eat is what they're eating, not what some scientist put in a test tube and said, here, you know, give it this grain. Um, right. That being said, when you when you eat, you know, an animal, let's say, you know, chicken, for example, from a cellular basis, because that's an animal and you are, in essence, an animal too, your body recognizes right. and identifies with that, that at a cellular level, you know, because when you right. ingest that, your body breaks it down into, uh, into you know, a more, I don't want to say purified, but in essence, yeah, because you, through your digestive process, it eliminates the things that the body can't use, which is what goes through your feces and urine, and the nutrients at a cellular level, it's easy to be absorbed because it's animal to animal. That's not to say right. that it doesn't identify, you know, vegetables and fruits because those are live cells as well. Um, but there's something to be said about, you know, um, you know, a mammal recognizing another mammal and taking right. that cell's nutrition, you know, because you look, you see the food chain, you see the 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 lion, for example, the lion who eats either a squirrel or any other kind of, you know, smaller animal, whether it's a goat or a deer. Again, it's animal to animal. So the, right. the breakdown of that, from a, if you look at it from a at a cellular level, the absorption and the metabolizing of that nutrient, it's going to go easier than something. Yes, it's a less complicated biochemical similar. transformation into living yeah. tissue when you're consuming exactly. something that's similar to what you're actually trying to build, as opposed to trying to fabricate something yeah. from, right? Well, yeah, these building blocks. And your from, body's able I mean, to, to use that energy quicker than, let's say, you know, a Twinkie. You know, you eat a Twinkie yes. or you eat any kind of, you know, packaged food that's processed and, you know, put that has a plastic wrapper around it. Well, it's going to take longer for your body to figure out how to digest and metabolize that. And then once it does use it, it's going to take a little bit more work for your body to figure out how to burn that fuel because that's right. not the natural way that your body – your body was not designed, you know, to figure out how to process a Pop-Tart, you know, or well, a five-hour energy. Well, like the trans fats – Right, you know, the trans fats and things that are in these in these foods, for instance, they have a different chemical structure. Or your body mm-hmm. treats them like a saturated fat. They get incorporated into your cells in that way, but they don't behave in the same manner. Um, there are there are chemical bonds and things happening in places that aren't natural, and therefore, when a metabolic process is taking place it kind of creates a state of cellular chaos because these fats don't behave normally when they incorporate into our, into our tissues. And it's sort of interesting. Once we consume, say, say, you know, you decide, okay, I'm going to eat my, you know, uh, French fry that was fried and hydrogenated, whatever, or my potato chips or whatever. And then I won't eat it anymore. I'm, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to have one more binge and then I'm not going to have trans fats anymore. Mm-hmm. It still takes, a, and this, according to Dr. Marianic, who is a bench chemist of more than 50 years and who um, was arguably one of the most knowledgeable people about uh, dietary fat and human health that ever lived, um, she would tell you that it takes a good two years to actually, for that, for that trans fat to leave your system once you've consumed it. And in the meantime, you're undergoing 
basically a state of metabolic chaos wherever those fats have incorporated into your tissues and leaving you vulnerable to mutagenic changes and all kinds of other problems um, along the way. So we, they know that the, you have a much higher risk of, 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 of cardiovascular problems and of development of cancer and whatever else with these trans fats. Now, the interesting thing is that most everybody kind of gets now, thanks to, by the way, the work of Mary Ennig, first and foremost, who was the first person to blow the whistle on these, on these fats and, and research their health effects. But now most of us realize that, yeah, you know, margarine and, you know, and vegetable shortening and crap like that is bad for us. Um, mm-hmm. and, and laws have been changed now that are designed to basically take these manufactured fats or at least trans fats out of the food supply. But um, one of the things that is not um, uh, really kind of um, uh, one of the things that people don't realize, even though trans fats are supposed to be phased out of our manufacturing, you know, industrial food supply by 2018, everybody's like, oh, phew, you know, now everything's trans fat free, which not everything is, by the way. Lots of things say they're trans fat free and they're not. Um, a commercial, a popcorn, you know, microwave popcorn is one of the great examples of that. Where you, it says on the label, hey, trans fat free, and then you look on the back under the ingredient Not list, really. and this is partially hydrogenated soybean oil. Because, well, and there's, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the way the industry Well, that's no different than a lot this, of things that say that they're, there's a lot of things that say they're organic, but, it, you know, you don't see that they're certified by the non-GMO product or USDA or exactly. you know, there's only two or three different labels that are legitimately right. will verify third party that that is a organic yes. non-GMO food exactly. as opposed to a it's company becoming, that just has a label that says, you know, this is a pervasive problem, you know. And yeah, if it's you becoming don't know that extremely those, complicated, yeah, to identify well, real is. food. Yeah, and, and they yeah. know what kind of buzzwords we're looking for, right? But but it, uh, well, yeah. so the laws are increasingly favoring industry and and helping them get around um, certain things. And so, for instance, in the case of microwave popcorn, the way they can get away with that is that there's only a certain amount. There's a certain amount of trans fat per serving that has to be present before the the company has to disclose the existence of it in there. Well, no amount is safe. That's been established. No amount of trans fat is safe. It's not safe in any quantity, even trace quantities. But what they do is they adjust the serving size so that the amount of trans fat per serving is below that threshold. So they can get away with saying, hey, it's trans fat free when it's not. Just like many things are supposedly gluten free when they're not. Uh, because there's a certain amount of gluten that they allow industry to play, to, to have residually present in those foods uh, before they actually have to disclose the gluten being present. And by the way, those trace amounts are sufficient to cause um, all kinds of immunologic, um, you know, uh, you know, craziness uh, in people with autoimmune diseases and everything else. And so, you know, and you can have a package of organic non-GMO gluten-free brownie mix, you know, and it, it's, still crap you know it's still junk food basically then that's the thing they they really are interested in kind of manipulating us into thinking we're buying health food at times when when we're really not so um but the other the other thing that's happening 
is that trans fats are now being replaced in the food supply by another type of manufactured fat that's actually been around for a really long time. But this is what's taking over. They're called interesterified fats. And they're basically designed to do the same thing trans fats are, basically you know, extend the shelf life of otherwise you know, rancidity-prone vegetable oils so they don't smell bad when you open them or use them. But, um, but it's, they're basically made by changing the positions of fatty acids on the triglycerides. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it might sound innocent enough, but this reaction is basically used to change the natural fat properties and the results, uh, as kind of borne out through the research into their effects, are every bit as unhealthy as trans fats. Only this stuff is, is frequently hidden on labels. So don't expect to see the word intrasterified there. You might, but chances are you won't. Um, the FDA well, has ruled yeah. that food manufacturers can use terms like high stearate or steric rich fats, you know, in place of intrasterified. Uh, to confuse things even further, if you see the terms fully hydrogenated vegetable oil, um, palm oil or palm kernel oil in the labeling, mm-hmm. the product may or may not contain intrasterified fat. And, um, so you want to avoid, like most commercial palm oil and palm kernel oil, which I know some circles see as a nice, healthy, traditional fat, most of it is intrasterified. Fractionated oils are a bad thing. Don't buy them, but they're, they're, they're popular, like these liquid coconut oils that are being sold for cooking and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we need to be a little bit suspicious of something that's not behaving the way it, it otherwise would in nature. So. Yeah, it, it, these things yeah. are problematic. So sticking as close as we can to food in its natural state in a, in, a, in a manner that would have looked like food to somebody wandering around 40,000 years ago with a loincloth and a spear or maybe a pair of mukluks, as it were, <laughs> um, you know, is a good rule of thumb to follow. People need to realize the 97% of the meat raised for food in this, in this world is being is being raised in, in in basically it's it's feedlot farmed or factory farmed. That's to me is not an acceptable thing. And one of the things that um, you know I actually you know with my publisher we went back and forth on this during the editing stages of the book because you know they said well you know yeah we know grass fed it's great and everything and organic is great but you know that's all kind of expensive and you know shouldn't we just say people should just do the best they can and i said yeah no you know yeah, i'm i'm laying out compromising approach to health because if we're if we're compromising the quality of the food that we consume we are in effect compromising our health and i won't be a party to that my approach is mm-hmm. here's what's optimal this is what we need to demand when we go to the grocery stores, go to the meat market and say, you know, go to the meat counter and say, okay, what are you carrying here that's 100% grass-fed and finished? And that's something you have to be suspicious of too because, again, the laws have been changed now to favor industry. And technically, all cows spend part of their life on pasture. So you kind of have to get them on that technicality of was this animal – fed exclusively and finished exclusively on natural pasture. In other words, was this an exclusively grass-fed animal? Or is this something that spent, you know, part part of the uh, last part of its life in a feedlot? And 
and it's important that um, you know that we that we patronize the establishments that are that are getting their meat from these you know these higher quality sources um, where there, you have farmers and ranchers that are working extremely hard to do the right thing. That's where I want my food dollar going. Not somebody whose primary interest is in profit, their bottom line profit, and not my health. And so, um, and and it's it, it, a matter of creating the demand, right? Pardon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to put out a quality. The, the first and foremost most concern should be to put out the highest grade quality product out there, and then second is should be then to profit because people are willing to pay for quality anything, quality food, quality. Yeah merchandise i mean it doesn't matter whether it's something right. you put on your body in your house or inside your body people are willing to pay for that and so if you have a farmer or a rancher who is making sure that they put the highest grade quality animal or plant you know uh, to the public and if that's number 1 and they won't compromise that then of course they should be remunerated for that and the community Absolutely. should support that because they're Don't they're, want they're getting something that's an people. integrity Absolutely, yes. want it to reward those yes. people. Yes, yeah, and and, and I also make a I also make a case for getting to know, you know, developing a better firsthand knowing of where your food actually comes from. So shopping at farmers markets, um, and even going out and visiting the ranches, where the animals, um, you know, that that you're, you know, whose meat you're purchasing are being raised for food, so you can see firsthand how they're living, under mm-hmm. what conditions, what are they being fed. And um, developing that that closer firsthand knowing to where our food comes from, and, and I think there are, there are benefits that you know might seem almost a little esoteric in, in in that regard. In other words, that I mean, I've had the experience of of eating something that um, you know of looking something in the eye that later wound up on my dinner plate, and it was a profound experience for me. Versus just buying something shrink wrapped in the store and and you know kind of you know frying it up or you know whatever and then you know putting it you know noshing on it on your way to work or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's very different, and and I, I I'm you know kind of interested actually in, in in locating research to support this because I think there has to be something somewhere. The idea that we would take food into our body a little differently when we have that firsthand knowing of where it comes from. You know, our our, our ancestors and in and in indigenous cultures, you know, they it's sort of interesting. They didn't necessarily even see the animals they hunted as being inherently separate from from themselves. Their cosmology saw basically a unity kind of in all things. Mm-hmm. Everything kind of being all the expression of the same thing. Um and, and there was you know, it's interesting because they had, I think, a deeper reverence for life than anything we can even begin to comprehend today because they lived within the context of their natural ecology, right, and mm-hmm. and uh, had a very firsthand knowing, very firsthand uh, connection to all the life um, surrounding them and everything that supported and nourished them. And when they took the life of an animal, it was an energy exchange. It was a sacred act when they consumed that animal. It was this, it was an energy exchange. You know that that reverence for life didn't make these people vegetarians. It basically, no. it it gave them. You know they recognized Gratitude. that there is a cycle of life of which we are a part, whether we like it or not. 
and they recognize their place within that cycle. Well, and and for those of us, I was a bio, you know, pre-med bio in school. So, you know, as a pre-med biology student for undergraduate, uh, it was acutely yeah, me too. I was acutely aware of the chain of you know from you know the king of the you know of the forest, so to speak, and the jungle down to you get to the amoebic level, you know, in the sea where you have fish that eat particles of of life forms that you can't see with the naked eye. So you right. see how, yeah. you know, the the shark eats the seal, the seal eats a certain type of fish and the you know, and those fish eat certain shrimp. I mean, there is a chain of life and so there is that natural order which is why and and you see it on land, air, yes. and sea. And so there is and there's no waste um, right. in in that chain in that chain. And so the thing is that we have the disconnect because of our urban and cityfied way of living where we don't really necessarily see how they kill chickens. You know, we see them already, you know, without feathers, oftentimes even deboned, nicely packaged. Right, now there are children that don't even know how to identify where their food comes from. You ask them, you know, where does does chicken meat come from? And, you know, they don't know what, what kind of animal to point to. Or, or they say that anything, anything that's not a fruit or a vegetable or a legume, you know, whether it's turkey, whether it's beef, whether it's fish, to them, all of it is chicken. I've seen that too. <laughs> <laughs> they call anything that's meat. Everything like, tastes like all chicken. Of it is chicken. <laughs> yeah, to them, right. everything is chicken. It could be fish. It could be, you know, shrimp, uh, turkey. Doesn't matter. It's all, all of it is chicken. You know, they don't have that awareness that yeah. you know those are actually different. You know, you know. It, so there is a bit of a disconnect there, but. Yeah, um, we, we yeah, get into so, trouble when we when we either see ourselves as somehow outside of separate. the cycle of life and death or somehow above mm-hmm. it. Um, everything that lives as an organism in this world uh, basically has to kill in order to eat, including a vegetarian. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of, I guess, the, the, the value that you place upon the life of a plant versus an animal. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, we know now there's, there's quite a bit of research to suggest that plants do experience some form of sentience, you know. And we also oh, know yeah. that there is a lot of animal life that gets sacrificed in the production of plant-based foods, that there really has not been a more destructive force upon the planet than the, than the force of agriculture, then, um, by, yeah. created by humans anyway. And so, Let, you know, it, yeah. it's about, yeah. I mean, just just sort of understanding that that we do have a natural role to play in the cycle of life and death on the planet, and that and that we can't necessarily, no matter how we might wish it were so, we're really not outside of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the one thing I do want to have you touch upon, um, I have the uh, for years and years and years. Um, first of all, I, I was blessed with the good fortune that I have a mother who. Um, not only was it, she was an educator, but she was ahead of her time. You know, she was always very conscientious about you eat to nourish your body. You don't just eat things that you like how they taste. Um, mm-hmm. And so she was, you know, back in the day, you know, when Jack Lane was into his calisthenics and all the oh, yeah. exercise and Jack. so forth. You know, to this day, you know, my mom still does her calisthenics every morning and before she goes to sleep and is much into health and nutrition. But that being said, one of the things that ever I remember being in high school and the big fad was, you know, the diet, diet Coke, diet Pepsi, diet Seven Up, diet, diet, diet. 
Sure. And one of the things that I've always had an aversion to, and knock on wood, it's very interesting. I've never had a weight problem. And some people would say mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, you're just genetically predisposed to not be heavy. You can eat whatever you want, blah, blah, blah. But I've always had this theory, and, and my theory has always been. Are you there? Hello. Hello. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't know what to do. Like, uh, I was <laughs> I don't know at what yeah, point was... it just went. <laughs> Where yeah, your voice started to sound Your voice started to fade farther and farther away. You were talking about how your mom was into all this healthy stuff and whatever else and then it just your voice started to kind of fade and then suddenly just kind of like it just disappeared off into the distance. And, and, uh, and I, and I hovered and I waited and I'm like, well, you know, you're there. Hello. And I finally, not, uh, not a, you know, well, yeah. we're, we're so back. then I so, tried calling back. Yeah. So we're back here. Okay, cool. So, so are we live? So we're back. So yes, we're live. We're going to edit this show cause this is going to be, we'll render it and we'll broadcast it at a later point in time. Okay. Um, okay. But so where I left off talking about my mom and health and nutrition was one of the things that, you know, ever since I was in high school, um, I noticed that that's when the fad of diet, you know, fat-free, you know, this, that, and whatnot, and, um, you know, Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi, all those different uh, type of things came out. And I remember, you know, staying my entire life, I've stayed away from anything that has fat-free, sugar-free, low-fat, the word diet in it. I just don't touch yeah. any of that stuff. I've always stayed yep. away from it, and I've always been, I, you know, have always been more because of the influence of my mother that, you know, you eat food to nourish your body. You look at food from the perspective of what nutrition you're going to get, you know, from those plants, those fruits, those vegetables, that turkey, that fish, that chicken, et cetera. You always look at it from a nutritional standpoint and move forward with that. And so I've always stayed away from all of those things, and I've always thought that, uh, that you know, because I was a pre-med biological sciences major, you know, I did take organic right. chemistry. I did take biology, microbiology, genetics, et cetera. And I know that the human body, when you take, let's say that you're, you're chewing on a piece of sugar cane, you happen to be on vacation in Hawaii, and you chew a piece of sugar cane and you're sucking the sugar out of that, you're, as soon as that sugar hits your tongue, it automatically sends a signal to your brain going, oh, she's eating sugar cane. We're going to get X amount of calories, X amount of energy units that we can use because she's eating this particular, in this case, sugar cane. So your brain goes, okay, so now you've got you to gotta set things up in your body. You kick off the signals to metabolize that. And your body uses that energy appropriately. It knows exactly what to do, how to do it, end of story. But when you take a Diet Coke, the Diet Coke to me is like an 18-wheeler truck. And you have an 18-wheeler truck. It's called you in advance and said, hey, we got two tons of, of, of stuff you know, in this uh-huh. 18-wheeler truck that we're about to deliver to you. 
And when you drink that Diet Coke, your tongue receives that sugar, and your brain goes, oh, we're getting another, we're getting some cargo here. We should be getting two tons of energy. And all of a sudden, your brain, as it sets off signals, it goes, oh, oh, wait a minute, red flag alert. Let's put all the red flags up because this 18-wheeler, we thought it had two tons of energy, but now it turns out this 18-wheeler is empty. Something's wrong. Stop the metabolism. we got to either stop or right. slow it down because we were expecting two tons of energy, and now there's zero or only a pound of energy instead of two tons. So right. people are taking diet, sugar-free, low-fat, you name it. These things yeah. that are probably do have reduced calories, do have lower energy units and so forth. But first of all, your, cheat, your brain is going, wait a minute, we're being cheated from what we expected. So guess what? Here these people are wanting to lose weight, and you need to, if anything, speed up your metabolism, not slow it down. But your brain is a perfectly functioning organ, and so it's going to slow things down because it's not getting what it expected despite, you know, what well, part of what happens. Getting. Part of what happens is that the sweet taste itself can actually trigger an insulin response and will mm-hmm. cause your body to rapidly start storing. Because uh, insulin is not necessarily a blood sugar hormone. Insulin's job is, is basically to take excess um, when it senses sort of excess nutrients and, and uh, move them into storage. And the thing about carbohydrates, about sugars, is that every molecule of carbohydrate that we consume can be considered more or less excess. Uh, because it's not something, you know, that, I mean, there's only a, a certain amount, there's only about a teaspoon worth in your bloodstream at any given time that you uh, actually, your your body, you know, allows to be there. And the rest of it gets shuttled away, shunted away, either into our glycogen stores in a very limited way or uh, to your liver where it gets turned into triglycerides and then gets stored on your body as body fat in places you'd probably rather mm-hmm. not have it. But when you when you taste um, sugar, um, and and but there's nothing there, the sweetness alone can be sufficient to trigger an insulin response. And insulin is about taking and storing away whatever the calories are there for uh, for basically in case of a famine later on. And um, and so it, you're gonna you're more likely to get fat on. Uh, well, you're every bit as likely to get fat consuming yeah. diet cal- diet sodas yeah. as you are the ones that contain sugar. And I'm not saying, well, so yeah. the sugar's better for you. It's really not. Um, the high fructose corn syrup that's used to sweeten these beverages uh, is is creating vast tidal waves of insulin response, but also triggering an enzyme in your body called fructokinase, which is produced in response to consumption of fructose. And and what that fructokinase does is it basically sends a message to your brain, start storing fat, start storing it now. This is a metabolic adaptation from the days in which, you know, in the late summer when fruit ripened, uh, ripe, when fruit ripened on the vine, you know, gorge ourselves with the ripe fruit of the late summer, and it would we would uh, it would stimulate ex- store of of more body fat that was actually an adaptation to help us outlive, winter. you know, the coming lean, yeah, the lean months. And, of course, I don't care if you live in Minnesota in February when it's 40 below. Winter ain't coming for us anymore. 
we're living in 72 degree, you know, environments now, um, you know, very comfortable climate controlled environments. And we're really not living, you know, within these natural cycles anymore. And, uh, but we still have the same kind of primitive, if you will, or primal, as I would call it, physiology. And we also have a psychological makeup of that, that, that our wild ancestors had. Anything in the wild has a feast or famine mentality. You eat while the eating's good, and because tomorrow you don't know where your next meal might be coming from. Well, here we are today living in a modern era where we have this unnatural access to this unnatural abundance of frequently unnatural foods, and we still have that feast or famine mentality. Only now, you know, you don't have to go out and hunt it. You can, don't have to take more than two steps in any direction to be able to grab a handful of something and put it in your mouth. And heck, you can even be sitting on your couch in front of the TV, and if your front door's unlocked, you can get somebody to deliver a pizza right onto your lap. And so, you know, this is, this is a problem. And food manufacturers are well aware of, of, these, of, of, of this psychology. They're well aware of these mechanisms that drive us to eat. They're well aware of chemicals that they can put in the food, like you know, monosodium glutamate, for instance, which is more of, a, more of a drug than it is a food substance, that triggers your brain to just want to eat more of whatever's there. Um, in fact, it's something that they use to induce obesity in mice and rats. Um, and, you know, you have to understand that the, that the food industry, it's not just about clever advertising. They really understand um, not just human psychology, but human brain chemistry in a way that they'll manipulate it any way that they can to sell more of whatever it is they're selling. And mm-hmm. when you're a multinational corporate interest, you know, your primary um, you know, when you're a corporation, your primary obligation is to the stockholder to create a profitable product. It is not uh, an obligation to create something that is high quality or that is healthy or good for anybody. And uh, it's all about the bottom line and profitability. And, uh, you know, frankly, there isn't a single multinational corporate interest on planet Earth that wouldn't be heavily invested in every man, woman, and child alive Um eating a diet that is based in carbohydrate-based foods because they are che- they're easy to produce, they're cheap as heck to mm-hmm. produce, they're highly profitable. Mm-hmm. You can't make a 5,000% profit on a grass-fed steak like you can a box of cereal, and they keep whoever is consuming that food more or less perpetually hungry. Dietary carbohydrates such as sugar and starch are metabolic kindling for our metabolic fires. And uh, if you're living on kindling, if you're trying to heat your house with kindling, you can do it, but you become a slave to that metabolic wood stove. What's the alternative? Why not take a nice big fat log and put that on the fire, take the kindling away, and just keep the mm-hmm. fire going with, with these, metaphorically speaking, metabolic logs. Mm-hmm. Dietary fat oh. is something that will burn all day long, even in the absence of regular meals. It's a very stable fuel for your body and brain to function on. And you're not going to get good at burning fat, by the way, by burning sugar all day long, any, but any more than you're likely to get good at playing tennis by playing golf. You know, you get good Absolutely. at burning fat by burning fat, by giving your body that as a primary source of fuel and telling it, this is what I want you to burn. It, then it won't feel like it has to hang on to those fat stores that meant survival to our primitive ancestors. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll feel free to let them go 
so that you have now access. You mentioned an 18-wheeler. You know, if you imagine an 18-wheeler gas tanker filled with gasoline, and you see these things pull into gas stations, <laughs> because they're, then they're filling up a tiny, tiny little gas tank, you know, um, yeah. because, you know, they're, they're, they're not tapped into. The, the guy driving the truck isn't, you know, tapped into the big tank in the back of the 18-wheeler. If you see an, ober- an obese person sitting on a park bench, you have the same situation. They're basically using this tiny little gas tank that's being fueled by carbohydrate kindling. Well, when they and, have and an enormous, then, what, yeah, yeah, yeah tank. Full they're of wondering fuel. why they have chronic fatigue, why why they have right. um, you know all these other symptoms, and so everything is tied together. And until people take yes. the personal responsibility to not make it, you know, it's like you know you can't be pointing at these big you know food manufacturing. You got to take. You have to take personal responsibility as to what it is you put in your mouth because you're the one who's buying it and you're the one who's chewing it. And so until right. and then, and then if you take the responsibility to educate yourself and find out exactly what really is good nutritional food that will fuel your body appropriately, that is the first the biggest step I think anybody can take. We have less than a minute and a half left. So uh in the, you have 30 seconds to say finding final remarks. Well, I'm in, um, in, I want to encourage your listeners to, uh, to go visit my website, primalfatburner.com, also primalbody-primalmind.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, uh, you know, both those books actually uh, have, are just, you know, they have almost all five-star reviews. Uh, and I also have a new educational program called Primal Power 52. That is a weekly educational series. Uh, basically designed to give people a very, very thorough understanding of how their body works, how it functions, and, and give them the ability to make uh, make the most optimal use of the, of the information that I have to offer and be able to take total control of your own health, you know, throughout the year. So well, I encourage also people to check out primalpower52.com. Um, yeah. So we will and put those I, links I really on our appreciate show. being here. Yes. You're quite welcome. We've just got about 15 seconds left. Nora, this has been a fascinating hour and a half with you. We thank you for being on the Bottom Line Show Live, and we look forward to uh, having you back in the future again. We could have easily extended this another hour, hour and a half. Or, or thank more, you. yes. <laughs> thank yes, you, Lillian. Yes. It's really a pleasure. So thank you, Nora. Peace and love always. Thank you. You too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, take care.